We travelled by bicycle. <gasps> bicycle theft. Welcome to For You The War Is Over, a podcast about Second World War, Prisoner War Escapes, hosted by me, Dave. And me, Tony. And in this episode, we have, I think, a first. We have a, a Swedish gentleman yes. as an escaper. Now, yep. we've mentioned Sweden many times in that escapers have made their ways there. But in this case, this is a, a Swedish man flying for the Royal Air Force. Mm-hmm. And it's quite interesting, actually, because I saw the name Flight Lieutenant Gustav Hermann Longberg a 15 operational training unit, Middle East Command. Now, it's not really covered in this, but I know 15 operational training unit because I think, as I mentioned before, I was brought up in Oxfordshire Mm -hmm. and 15 operational training unit was the major training unit at RAF Harwell, which was about three miles away from where I was brought up. Well, I didn't think 15 operational training unit had any connection to the Middle East. So when I saw this on the report, I thought that doesn't make sense. As far as I'm aware, they were based in Oxfordshire throughout the war. So I had a little look and it does lead into the story. For those that don't know about operational training units, the idea was is you would take a group of people, so navigators, gunners, pilots and everything else, and you would bring them together as a crew. And you would need to train a crew to carry out a role on a particular aeroplane. So the pilot might have done their operational conversion unit to the type, but you needed to bring these guys together as a crew. And that was the purpose of operational training units. Typically, they would train around about 25 full crews every month. And they would do practice bombing and practice gunning and all this. And then they would go off to an operational squadron. But I wasn't aware of this Middle Eastern one until I had a little look. And it turned out that there's a satellite airfield down the road called Hampstead Norries, which I used to cycle to when I was a little boy in the summers. It's uh, It's got a big beacon on it at the moment, and there's a tiny little private airstrip. But what they used to do is they used to select crews from 15 operational training units specifically for Middle Eastern operations. And they also had to do long ferrying flights. And there was only about 10 crews a month out of those 25 that would be selected for this. And in that aspect, that's really the sort of start of the story as to how this goes. Because in Lomberg's report, he picks up elsewhere. But Lomberg himself is an interesting individual. Because as the report says, you know, he was he was an older gentleman. You know, he was born in uh, 1911. And we're now talking of 1942. So he's 31 years old. And he was down as a civil airline pilot as a peacetime profession. Now, I couldn't actually find a reference to him being a civil airline pilot. I found that he was flying target tugs from Bromer Airfield for the military pre-war. But he appears to have come across to the Royal Air Force in August 1941. Now, Sweden was neutral and there was still passage to and from. We've seen it with escapers that come back. But I thought I'd cover a little bit on Sweden in particular because they did give limited assistance to both sides during the war. For example, German-owned factories and mines and things that had been set up there pre-war continued to operate and continued to supply the German war effort. But equally, we used to use that country for training. So if we had Norwegian resistance or Danish nationals that had come across, we would send them to Sweden 
to do their training. And indeed, actually, later in the war, obviously, with all the Tirpitz raids and things like this, we used to use Swedish airfields as a refueling point in order to okay. go and attack Norway and Russia and everything else. So there was an awful lot of collaboration, shall we say. And I suspect Gustav decided that he was going to come across at one point and either using the various transport methods, because I think we had a regular postal service still that was running to and from Sweden during the war with Moskies. I think BOAC operated uh, a setup. Now, the interesting thing is when he did come across, he was basically put into testing. So he was flying aeroplanes that were coming out of the factory. And and actually, he, he, during the course of the war, even bearing in mind he was interned, because, spoiler alert, he escapes and gets home. By the end of the war, he'd flown 5,000 hours in 119 different types of aircraft, of which 70 of those he flew as a test pilot. Wow. So he wasn't operational to that extent but you know he was certainly involved in a lot of training and a lot of testing um, but he misses out a lot of this out of his report obviously mm. and his report starts in Gibraltar which ties in with the operational training unit of aeroplanes and in this case it was Wellington bombers that were being ferried down to Egypt so the result is they would take off from Hampstead Norries and their first stop would be Gibraltar refueling stop and then they would carry on down the Mediterranean so let's pick up on how he was captured. So we are looking at the 30th of May, 1942, when he was taking off from Gibraltar in a Wellington aircraft at about 3.15 in the afternoon on a ferrying trip to Malta. At about 2,200 hours, my navigator told me that he had pinpointed Cape Bon in Tunisia. About half an hour later, we passed over land and the aircraft was hit by flak. Soon afterwards, we received a radio message from Malta, which stated that there was an air raid in progress. The wireless operator then asked for QDMs and continued to do so until we crash-landed. So QDMs is basically an acronym for a magnetic heading. So they were ever so slightly lost, or they were certainly trying to confirm where they were and where they needed to go. And he continues to say, We were flying a course to Malta, taking the land we'd passed over that we were hit by flak as a pinpoint. Our ETA at Malta was 2,300 hours. From 2,300 hours, I flew north and south, searching for Malta. Soon afterwards, I was informed that we were running short of petrol, and I gave the order to switch on the nacelle tanks whilst we continued our search. These are extra tanks that were behind the engine that was fitted rather than the main tanks that were in the wing. Soon after midnight, two lights were observed, and we flew towards them. We came to a large island, but decided it could not be Malta because of the high mountains. A few minutes later, the port engine cut, and I crash-landed on the side of a mountain at about half-past midnight on the 31st of May. The following day, I discovered that we'd crash-landed on Sicily. Bit of a miss. Bit of a miss, not particularly helpful. No. After landing, Sergeant Rawlings, who was one of his crew, and I carried the dinghy a distance of about half a mile, but could not carry it any further. It was our intention to take it to the coast and to make our getaway. Before leaving the aircraft, I gave orders to the other members of the crew to destroy the aircraft and all secret papers, etc. This was done. Sergeant Rawlings and I then hid the dinghy in a clump of bushes and we tried to make contact with the other members of the crew. We missed them and decided to follow a ravine down to the coast. We arrived there at about 0400 hours and began to search for a fishing boat. We saw a party of Italian soldiers, so we hid in a cornfield and we remained there until dark when we resumed our search for a boat. We were unsuccessful and had to return to the cornfield. We remained there until about 1200 hours on the 1st of June when an Italian soldier approached the field carrying two food containers. He left the containers in the field to be collected by a sentry who had his beat through the field. Sergeant Rawlings and I 
crawled to the food containers, but we were seen by two Italian soldiers and were captured. Very unfortunate. No mm. mention of the other crew at the moment. We do know that the other crew were all taken prisoner eventually. Yeah, in this case, Lombergs remained free till the 1st of June, but sadly no longer. We were taken to a nearby village, his name unknown, as he recalls, and were handed over to the military police. There we met all the other members of the crew as they had been captured the previous evening. Well, that goes to show why he didn't meet up with them when mm. he went back to the wreck. The whole crew were taken by car all over that part of Sicily in search of the aircraft. We would not say where we had landed, and the aircraft was not discovered until afterwards. On return to the village, we were taken to Catania Aerodrome, where we remained until about the 4th of June. On that day, we were sent to a quarantine camp near Rome. We stayed there until about the 25th of June, when the other members of the crew were taken to a prisoner of war camp. On the 28th of June, I was taken to Campo 35. So Campo 35 was in a place called Padula. However, before then, he talks about how while they were in the quarantine camp, that's when they were interrogated about the aircraft, their location, etc. And it was while there he was told that as a Swede, he would be shot. Now, he had not given any information about his nationality and he buried his Swedish passport on the beach during his first night in Sicily. So quite how they find that out is not made clear possibly accent we don't know he doesn't state either and over and above that he was fully interrogated about the destruction of the aircraft and accused of sabotage which is an interesting interpretation that destroying your own aircraft might be sabotage now i can understand if he had destroyed a german Mm. airplane of being accused of sabotage but i'm less convinced by this argument however i'm not entirely sure the nazis were too bothered by technicalities when it comes to threatening shooting people and while they were in the quarantine camp they were kept in solitary confinement the whole time now the only food they received while they were there was soup twice daily for the whole period however they were able to bribe the guards to give them a little bit more bread and in the actual fact he says that he used his gold ring to bribe them with interesting Mm. it's not clear whether it's a wedding ring signet ring just a gold ring so he was to stay in campo 35 until august 1943 when he was moved to campo 19 near bologna also over a year Over a year, yeah, exactly. However, he wasn't to stay in Bologna for all that long because, of course, not long after August 43 came the Italian armistice in September. Of course it did, yes. And on the 9th of September 1943, at 0400 hours, not long after they learned of the armistice, and even shorter time, just a few minutes after the Germans had taken control, about 75 prisoners of war, including himself, made a dash through a portion of the fence which had been prepared in advance for the possibility that the Germans would take over the camp. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, we know that they'd been sent out. The stay-put order had gone out to prisoners of war. Yes, it had. Yeah. Which had been pretty unpopular. And so clearly they had considered the possibility that the Germans might appear because of this order and what they might do under those circumstances. Well, we've, we've seen this several times in Series 4, didn't we? In mm-hmm. fact, I think possibly even Series 3, we've covered a number of instances around this. Mm-hmm. Well, having watched 75 prisoners at war make their way through a hole in the wire and start making a run for it, the Germans opened fire and at least one of the party was killed and a couple more were wounded. Now, Lomberg ran into a wood close to the camp. However, they didn't get far before they discovered that the wood had been completely surrounded by the Germans, and throughout the remainder of the night, the Germans were opening fire with machine guns into the wood and were even lobbing in a couple of mortar shells from time to time. Yes, that's going to concentrate the mind somewhat. Yes, so somewhat inevitably, by four o'clock the next afternoon, the whole of the party, including Lomberg, had been recaptured and taken back to the camp. Now, he does state that they weren't punished by the German officer for this escape, but the German officer in question 
did say that anyone who was recaptured after that would be hanged. May have been something of an empty threat, but I'm having just watched them open machine gun fire into the wood and lobbing in a few mortar shells, I imagine they were taking the threat relatively seriously at this stage. Yeah. So that was his first escape attempt, which, interestingly, he made no attempt to escape whatsoever while in Camp 035. And it was only once the Italian armistice took place and the Germans took over the camp that he made any sort of attempt to escape. However, he was to make a pretty interesting, even spectacular escape. Now, what I found particularly interesting is there are a couple of parallels with another Italian escaper that we've seen, or an escaper in Italy that we have seen, Hmm. Sam Derry. Oh, I will come to that. Lombard goes on and states that on approximately the 20th of September 1943, the 1,400 British officers from Campo 19 were taken by motor lorry to Modena, and from there were put into cattle trucks on a train en route for Germany. Now, this is about 10 days after his first escape mm-hmm. that this has taken place. So he's now found himself on the train heading north towards Germany from Bologna. Now, while he was in this wagon... There was about 30 of them in the wagon in total. Now, there were no guards on the wagon itself, but every fourth wagon or so was a flat car on which several machine guns were mounted. And on top of that, at intervals along the train, German guards stood on the steps outside the wagons. So security was pretty high, with obviously a significant threat of, if you make a run for it, a machine gun may well be spraying some bullets in your general direction. Hmm. So, first of all, you had to get out of the cattle truck, and then after that, there was still a great deal of security surrounding them. At about 7 o'clock in the evening on the 20th, so around about dusk, which is actually always a good time to try and make an escape, because the sun has gone down, but the moon hasn't come up, so you're not yet in pitch dark. Yeah. So dusk is actually a really good time to try and make an escape. He states that he crawled through the ventilation slit of the wagon in which he was travelling and swung himself between this wagon and the next ones. So he's now standing on the platform between the two wagons. The one that he's just been in and the one that is attached to. Now he stood on the buffers for a few moments and then jumped off. Presumably to gather his... Thoughts. Courage. About what he's about to do, <laughs> yeah. yes. <laughs> or at least try and forget what he was about to do. And having thrown himself off moving train, he landed in a ditch filled with water a few miles north of Mantova. Now that's where the first comparison with Sam Derry comes in. Yes. So of course that is exactly how Sam Derry escaped. He threw himself out of a moving train as well. Slightly different circumstances in that he was a carriage rather than a cattle truck, but nonetheless... I have to admit, I always find the concept of throwing myself off a moving train, even one at relatively slow, say 20 or 30 miles per hour, still doesn't tempt. I've always admired that as an escape. Yeah, yeah, not for me. Yeah. Not for me. Very, very gutsy way to make your breakaway. It's the thought of being impaled on something or breaking ribs or ankles or neck or arms, because, you know, anything that you're going to break at that situation you're not going to be running away or getting away from the scene. And obviously, if you are going to jump from something, you want to make your way as far away as possible on foot. Yeah. And the the risks that are carried with a train jump are mm. high. But of course, on the flip side, because the train is travelling at a relatively high speed, if you do survive the fall, and it wasn't unknown for some to die having jumped on off a train but if you do survive the fall even if they do spray some bullets in your general direction the train's moving away at a pretty rapid rate and it's going to take a bit of time for it to slow down so you do have the opportunity to get away even on the assumption that the train does stop which generally speaking they don't tend to Mm. they tend to keep going and assume that the security forces in whichever country they're in will pick you up at a later stage so having thrown himself off a train and into a ditch 
Two of the guards on the train did open fire on him as he jumped. However, as I said, the, the train was moving away and so relatively quickly they stopped firing and he remained in the ditch until the, the sound of the train had died away in the distance. It did not stop. So what we have here is Lomberg lying in a ditch of water, having just escaped from a moving train somewhere in northern Italy mm-hmm. with no money, no food. No identity cards or no anything identity like that. Card. In fact, no resources whatsoever except himself and freedom, essentially. So having engineered that situation, he then walked northwest across country until he met an Italian ex-soldier in the hills about four kilometres west of Vabarno. Now that he states that this was on around about the 30th of September. Now he jumped off the train on the 20th of September and I looked it up and he's covered around about 70 kilometres in 10 days. Okay. Now that's not particularly quick, but he doesn't need to be. Mm. I suppose there's one point to make is that there's no rush and it's also possible that if he's moving at night and we have seen that those that move at night tend to move slower so if he is moving at night which would seem a sensible solution not least of which because we know that he made his escape just before night time so the first journey that he would have made would have been overnight so it seems relatively logical that he possibly did travel at night and then rested up through the day over the following 10 days so, as I say, it seems a logical conclusion that he travelled at night time, and we know that people who travelled at night tended to move slower. So 70 kilometres in 10 days may be about average. Mm-hmm. So while he was travelling, he does say that he didn't make any contact with any Italians. However, around about the 24th of September, he met a Captain Fishburne of the British Army, who was attached to the Indian Army, and a companion they had also escaped from the same train as himself. However, they decided to proceed separately. Now, I thought that was quite interesting, because while many escapers do choose to travel by themselves, normally they make that decision whether to travel with or without someone before they escape. Usually when they bump into each other, quite often join up together. And then we've seen that in, say, the escape lines where they gather together and then travel together as a larger number. But on this occasion, they've decided to travel separately, having bumped into each other while making their escape. And I just thought that was a bit interesting because we haven't really seen that before. No, no. So for the 10 days after he escaped from the train, he states that he lived on four bars of chocolate and a grapefruit that he had stolen. Now, I suppose when you're in a situation where needs must, you will take any food that you can, but I can't imagine four bars of chocolate and a grapefruit either went far or particularly good for him. There's not a great deal of... Nutritional value in that. Nutritional value or uh, long-term energy sources. I imagine you burn through the energy that it does provide relatively quickly. So I think also that may help to explain why he's not gone at a particularly rapid pace, because Mm. the pure energy that he'd be getting from his food would not have been particularly high. Or the rate of recovery for that matter. Hmm. So the Italian ex-soldier that he's bumped into near Vibarno took Lomberg to his home and they remained there until the middle of November. So that's another six weeks to two months that he's stayed in this area. And we are talking about around about midway between Milan and Venice in northern Italy. Yeah. So having stayed there until the middle of November, he states that around about that date, the soldier I was with escorted me to Gardone. We travelled by bicycle. (gasps) 
Bicycle theft. Well, we don't know if it was oh, stolen. Oh, let's assume it's bicycle theft. I mean, it does seem a fairly safe assumption given the sheer rate of those who travel by bicycle were almost exclusively stolen bicycles. So yeah. the odds are that it was, but it's very unclear. And of course, he does state that he was staying at the soldier's home. So it doesn't seem unreasonable to also assume that actually it was just the family bicycles that they used. However, I prefer the idea that they stole it because it's more in fitting with the tradition of escape. So having arrived at Gardoni, there they met a friend of the soldiers who then took them on further. And on arrival at Galley, they met a Lieutenant Arthur Graham of the Royal Engineers and 15 British and Dominion other ranks, as well as 10 Yugoslavs, Czechs and Frenchmen. So 27 in total. This is partly what I mean by when you do see them gathering together, they tend to group together. So I'm not entirely sure why, when he had the opportunity earlier, he passed it up. So about three days after he'd met up with this group, they met an Italian who lived close to the border with Switzerland. Now this man agreed to supply a guide to Switzerland in exchange for all of their arms, blankets, etc. Which suggests to me that he had some link to the partisans yes he's collected some bits yes reading between the lines here there's not much need for military arms and blankets unless you are involved with the partisans plus typically you don't have a lot of links to smugglers and guides to take you across borders unless you have some form of nefarious link Equally, he says he could not give us food, which also suggests that he was involved in some sort of military organisation who would certainly not be sharing food, but wanting to keep it to themselves, to keep themselves going. So this guide that he's been sorted out with took their party across the Swiss frontier near Campione, approximately round about the 17th of November. Now, I did want to pick up on this large grouping because, again, this is a similar scenario to the one that Sam Derry found himself in. Mm -hmm. Now, if you remember from our episode with Claire Derry, who, of course, is Sam's daughter, she states that having found this large group, he then made his way towards Rome and that then led to him ultimately running the Rome organisation out of the Vatican and that whole fantastic story that Claire shared with us in her episode and I thoroughly recommend anyone wanting to learn more about Sam's story to go back and listen to that episode because Claire was brilliant. That's right. Episode 12, wasn't it? Of, of series, series 4. four. Yeah. yeah. The main difference here, of course, is the location because, as I said, they're somewhere between Milan and Venice, so quite far north and quite significantly further north than Sam was. So the option to kind of just pop over the Swiss border wasn't quite as open to Sam Derry as it was to Lomberg here. But nonetheless, there are definitely similarities of prisoners of war who have managed to get out of the camps, particularly in the immediate aftermath of the armistice, grouping themselves together to help each other out. The similarities here, for me, are quite strong here. Absolutely. So having crossed the border into Switzerland, the guide took them to a farmhouse where the party of 27 was provided with tea, which is very British for a Swiss. Oh, absolutely. And soon after that, a Swiss soldier arrived and took them to the railway station where they were put on a train. Now, he was actually to spend quite a lot of time in Switzerland. In fact, he was to stay there for another nine months in total. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And it wasn't until the 12th of August 1944 that he was to be sent further on and make contact with an escape line. Now, we've discussed before that once you're in Switzerland, that's not the end of your journey. You have to be then sent on along an evasion line. And that this is no different at all for Lomberg. So he was sent in August 1944, so about two months after D-Day. 
mm-hmm. back into what was still occupied France, but of course now much more of a live front than it was previously, Yeah, with a South African sergeant. And they travel by train first to Montreux, which is still in Switzerland, and then to Colombe, where he met a guy who took the sergeant, Polish officer, and, them, and about 15 Frenchmen across the French frontier to Petit Châtel. Now, as I said, this is now much more of a live front than it had been previously. And having got to Petit Châtel, they made contact with the French Maquis. And they were to move around with the Maquis for the next week or so until they managed to make contact with some other soldiers. Now, the five of them then travelled by bus and then by car to Chambéry, where they stayed for a further few days. And then again by car, they travelled to Grenoble, where they met Allied forces around about the 25th of August. So having now made contact with the Allied forces, they then hitchhiked to Saint-Tropez, which sounds lovely. Mm-hmm. And from there, they met a group Captain Hugo, who arranged for their air passage first to Algiers, and then they were sent on from there by air to the UK, arriving back in the UK on the 5th of September 1944, which is a little over two years since they were captured. It's not bad going. No, not it's at all. It's not bad going. So we did find a little bit more about mm-hmm. him. So he did carry on flying in the Royal Air Force until 1946. I saw some comments that he was using a lot of transport aircraft, moving people around, obviously bringing people back from all the various theatres of war. But it didn't really go swimmingly for him when he returned to Sweden. So he was back in Sweden in 1946 and he was accused of an unauthorised stay abroad. That resulted in more than one court-martial. And in fact, I found one website hopefully it's not completely lost in translation but he wasn't eventually acquitted until his ninth court martial over a large number of years and he fought every single one but he was eventually acquitted Mm -hmm. after that long period of time but you know it had taken his flying license away and that was it's quite a hard thing if it's been your life Mm. for all of that now he did get his flying license back and he did continue to fly but he sadly passed away quite young it was 1980 he passed away so he was 69 years of age and it does seem that quite a large number of those years gave him some turmoil not just the wartime ones but the the result of his return to his country his native country afterwards so very little did i find about his character i love finding things about people's character but sadly there's very little out there there is some stuff on the web but it's it's largely in swedish it's largely very hidden i couldn't find any books on him i couldn't really find i mean he's referenced under different spellings of his name as well which doesn't help you know an interesting man who obviously wanted to do his bit didn't really do too much operationally but you know was certainly significant 5,000 hours mm. the majority of it testing airplanes coming out of the factory I mean that's a really useful and risky and risky contribution to the war effort and an escaper and an evader having crashed in Sicily I mean it, it's a fabulous story and well hopefully more will come out over time, if people hear this that have got some other sort of snippets, I'd love to know a little bit more. And great, you know, personal one for me by the fact that I know the places that he trained and I used to cycle as a little boy around the old airfield where he took off from. So, yeah, really nice. Interesting story. Our first Swede. Can't imagine we're going to find that many more Swedes, actually. Well, well no, because while we do know that there were Swedes who came over and served on the Allied forces and he was by no means the only one, he is, so far as we're aware, the only Swede who did manage to escape having been taken prisoner of war. So we think he's the only Swedish escaper of the war. When you say we're unlikely to come across too many more Swedes, certainly as escapers, we come across them fairly regularly as sailors, helping people escape from Baltic ports typically over to Sweden to get to a neutral country, but I don't think we're going to come across any more who are actually escapers. So he is utterly unique in that sense. 
Absolutely. Gustav Hermann Lomberg, a unique escaper. Well, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed that. If you'd like to subscribe, we're on Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, or indeed any of your favourite podcast platforms. Or you can find us on Twitter and Facebook by searching at F-Y-T-W-I-O. Or if you want to send us a more long-form message, you can email us at F-Y-T-W-I-O podcast at gmail.com.